Welcome to the Scientific Sense podcast, where we explore emerging ideas from science, policy, economics, and technology. My name is Gil Epen. We talk with world's leading academics and experts about their recent research or general areas of topical interest. Scientific Sense is an unstructured conversation with no agenda or preparation. We cover a wide variety of domains where new discoveries are made and new technologies are developed on a daily basis. We are most interested in how new ideas affect society and help educate the world how to pursue a rewarding and enjoyable life rooted in science, logic and information. We seek knowledge without boundaries or constraints and provide unedited content of conversations with researchers and leaders who love what they do a companion blog to this podcast can be found at scientificsense.com and this podcast is available on over a dozen platforms and directly at scientificsense.net if you have suggestions for topics guests and other ideas please send them to info@scientificsense.com and i can be reached at gil@epen.info My guest today is Dr. Shruti Rajagopalan, co-senior research fellow at the Mercator Center at George Mason University and a fellow at the Classical Liberal Institute at NYU School of Law. Her area of interest is the economic analysis of comparative legal and political systems. Welcome, Shruti. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, thanks for doing this. So I want to start with one of your uh, papers from a recent paper from 2021 the 1991 reforms and the quest for economic freedom in india uh you say that uh, this paper studies the 1991 reforms as a beginning of the transition toward a market economy from the socialist policies implemented in the first four decades of the indian republic tracking the major reforms in the three uh, decades since 1991 you say I, i argue that economic control and statist policies are the norm that reforms enhancing economic freedom are the outliers yeah so having grown up in india uh, i can um, i can relate to this uh, through the uh, and it, it's sort of interesting in in many different levels so um you talk about the the sort of the you know pre 1990 state of india um so we probably want to start in the 1940s and you know sort of you know uh, take our time to the 1990 something really dramatic happened in the 1990s in india and i was watching it from the us um not in detail but at least on the surface uh, things appear to be changing quite rapidly so let's just go back to 1940s um yeah. i mean we, india got the independence in 1947 um we had a group of leaders um <laughs> uh, I, i sometimes think of this as britain sort of held india back for about 200 years 
they probably held India back more because they educated the leaders <laughs> who sort of started India in the 1947. And so, so let's go back to that time and what do we see there? Yeah, uh, you know, thank you so much. This is a great broad question. And I think you're starting at the right point. So in the 1940s is when India gets its first real, uh, you know, brush with extensive economic controls. And at that point, they're a combination of a couple of factors. Uh, one immediate factor is World War II. Right. So uh, during wars, there's always some kind of war rationing. Right. And then, you know, suddenly prices shoot up. So you start getting price controls and quantity controls. And India was no different. It was a part of the colonial empire. A lot of the resources were getting drafted towards the war effort. So India saw this kind of like extensive controls come in, like whether it is currency controls, uh, whether it is quantity controls for various kinds of inputs, price controls for essential commodities. Uh, you know, this is sort of the time. Uh, during that period. Along the same time, there is an independence movement which is brewing. And as you rightly mentioned, uh, the nationalist leaders who sort of took over Indian governance from the colonial empire, uh, they were mostly British educated Indian elites. Uh, they, a lot of them were lawyers by training or they had studied at Oxford and Cambridge and the LSE. Uh, a number of national leaders were particularly inspired by the Fabian movement, right? Uh, and when I say the Fabian movement, there are two parts to it. One is, of course, the intellectuals. This is George Bernard Shaw. This is Harold Lasky. This is Sidney and Beatrice Webb. Uh, but there's also the Labour Party, the British Labour Party, which is becoming more prominent at that time. And the British Labour Party really supports, you know, a move towards greater Indian freedom in a way that other political parties uh, in Britain at the time did not, right? So it's an interesting combination of factors that is taking place at the time. It's political, it's intellectual. These leaders take over from the colonial state in 1947. And Nehru is of course, most famously known for being Fabian socialist, right? The folklore is Nehru is hugely inspired by Harold Lasky and George Bernard Shaw, but it's not just Nehru. Right, his right hand mind, uh, right right hand man, Trilok Singh, is very instrumental in drafting uh, the first five year plan, and a socialist. Right, P. C. Mahalanobis, who is a very important physicist turned statistician, uh, implements the second five year plan. Uh, you know, uh, whether it is Pitambar Panth, like so many of the people surrounding Nehru at that time, uh, within the bureaucracy, uh, within the governance system, they're all Fabian. In the 30s, the Indian National Congress Party also sets up what is called the socialist wing. They start looking at how they can make development plans. That is their, their model for India's development post-independence is very much an economic planning scheme, right? Mm -hmm. And a lot of these plans are inspired by the socialist system. And a lot of them are also inspired by the Fabian idea. India, of course, you know, eventually turns into a constitutional democracy. Right. Uh, so the Fabian model is much more pertinent uh, relative to the Soviet model. So this is where it all begins. In the 1950s, India has a continuation of the war controls, but it also implements a number of policies which are socialist. And the idea is that India will gradually move towards greater and greater equality 
and greater and greater government control over resources, because that's sort of the plan, right? Uh, so India starts with a mixed economy. There are certain sectors which are only reserved for the government. There are commodities which are marked as essential commodities, which is an extension of war controls, but more things are added to it. A lot of the factors of production, you know, this is your land, labor, you know, financial capital, all of these are brought under extensive government regulation. Mm. And by the time you have the second and third five-year plan, you very much have a Soviet-style planned economy, not mm. a 100% planned economy because it's still a mixed economy. But the government is essentially got a plan on how many bicycles need to be produced, for instance, <laughs> in the economy, right? It's, so it's, how not, many... it's not bread and butter, but it's bicycles and rickshaws in this case. Exactly. <laughs> and, you know, now when you think about the Indian system, the mixed economy was very much uh, controlling the means of production, right? Like you said, it's not end use, apples, oranges, bread and butter. That has a much more thriving private market for it. But if you're controlling how much iron and steel, you know, that needs to be produced in the economy, and it's completely under the government sector, and you are relatively a closed economy. That's the other part, right? This is the hangover or the baggage from the East India Company and the extra extractive mercantilist policies of the British uh, crown. Uh, you decide that you're going to be a very closed, inward-looking economy, right? Mm -hmm. I have to add at this point that this was also the sort of, you know, a mainstream prescription for developing economies at that time. Mm. Right. It's not like modern day economics where the growth prescription is very much, you know, free trade and, and property rights and strong institutions and sound governance. At that time, the idea was that this kind of deeply intertwined free trade, global free trade model, that's great for developed economies, but developing economies need to be protected. Right, their industries, their sectors need to be protected, which means you need to have a relatively closed economic model. You need to have very high tariffs, you know, so that you can protect the domestic industry. So this is what's going on in India. So I'll give you a yes. simple example. Sorry. Yeah. No, so, no, so, 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 so you, you talk about Nehru, and you know, sort of the first Indian leaders, um, sort of getting enamored by Oxford uh, uh, ideas um, in the 1940s. And they come to India and they try to implement those ideas. And overlapping with this, it, which I find is quite interesting, I never thought about this, is this idea that during the war, there were a lot of controls. And then India becomes independent. And you have sort of a status quo maintenance problem <laughs> yeah. for, for, a, for a short period of time. And the status quo maintenance is really driven by controls, right? So that is that is sort of how we got here. Yeah, and so, you know, unfortunately, that's not where we stayed. It just got progressively worse, right? <laughs> and some of it getting progressively worse is actually, it's the nature of socialist planning. Each intervention demands a further intervention. So, you know, let's say that the prescription at that time was that the government must control iron and steel. And the idea was that, you know, iron and steel is very much a high financial capital investment kind of sector. Private industries are not going to be able to do it. They're not going to be able to achieve scale. So let's reserve this for the government and the government's going to do this. And if you don't allow imports and you're a closed economy, now resources are scarce, right? So if the government's figuring out iron and steel, it actually needs to figure out what kind of iron and steel requirements are there in the rest of the economy if it's running a planned economy. Mm. So 
this becomes very complicated very quickly, right? Uh, so for instance, the kind of steel we need to produce for bicycles is quite different from the kind of steel we need to produce for say my glasses, right? Sure. So now if you want to correctly a lot, you need to know what is the priority of bicycles vis-a-vis -vis the priority of glasses in an economy. How many bicycles do we need, right? And then we can appropriately produce these goods, which means now you need to target the number of bicycles produced in the economy, right? And how do you target the number of bicycles produced in the economy? You need to fix the number in advance. It can't be determined by the market, right? And if you fix the number in advance, you don't want people hoarding bicycles, which means you're going to have a permit system of who is allowed to have a bicycle. So you have bicycle permits. Right. So this is the nature of a socialist economy. Right. Uh, I have a really wonderful example here. These are, you know, the Bajaj Chetak scooters, oh, which yeah. used to be, you know, it looks like a Vespa, basically. It's yeah, the yeah. Indian version of a Vespa. At one point, they even collaborated. It was called a Bajaj scooters, Vespa. Yeah. They were excellent scooters and kind of the, you know, the, the mainstay for the middle class Indian man or the middle class Indian small family. <laughs> right. Yeah. And the trouble was they became incredibly popular, right? Uh, but because you have a target allotment for iron and steel, you also have a target number for how many scooters can be produced in the economy, right? Mm. So Rahul Bajaj, who was, you know, the, the owner of the Bajaj sort of industries, he at one point kept going back to the Ministry of Commerce in India and said, look, the quantity demanded is far higher than the quantity we're able to supply. Hmm. But you can't increase the quantity produced. You need an expansion permit. You need a special iron and steel permit. You need a coal permit. If you want to import certain parts, you need a foreign exchange permit. So he'd keep going back for these permits and they didn't give him the permit, right? Now in a world where uh, Bajaj scooters are extremely popular, right? But you're not allowed to increase supply. The price of Bajaj scooter is going to skyrocket. Yeah. But in a socialist economy, how can we allow Rahul Bajaj to profit from our iron and steel and, you know, socialist five-year plan policy? So now what happens? Now you're going to have price controls in addition to the quantity controls on a Bajaj scooter, and you're going to have profit margin controls, you know? Mm -hmm. So the government will tell you how many scooters you can produce, what price you sell them at, and what is the maximum profit range that you can make off of these scooters, right? Mm -hmm. Now, the market is... The market, right? It cannot be controlled. You can just drive it underground. So what ended up happening was the wait list grew very long for a Bajaj scooter. And at one point, the price of a secondhand Bajaj scooter available immediately was about three times higher than a brand new Bajaj scooter, but that would only be available six years from now, right? Yeah, so th this is a slippery slope of planned economies. And yeah. uh, we do this, we have seen this in many, many instances before. We appear to continue to do this. Um, and what the planners don't understand is that they don't have all the information to yes. optimize the problem. However smart they are, they think they are. Uh, it, it, there's sort of uncertainty in the, in the information and optimization is a dynamic problem. So, so we have proven that mathematically, but then um, India sort of continues on that path, right, from the 1950s. You know, it's a little unfortunate. So what you say is absolutely right. You know, Mises and Hayek famously had, they were part of what was called the calculation debate, right? And the socialists on the other side were Oscar Langer and Abba Lerner. And 
this debate uh, famously now we know that Mises and Hayek won right and their argument was quite simple it's exactly what you're saying it is that this simply cannot be done. It was called the impossibility of socialist calculation. You simply cannot calculate when you don't have prices reflecting the relative scarcity of goods and you can't make profit and loss calculations, right? So, so you're right. This debate took place well before 1950, but the orthodoxy was still promoting socialist ideas for a long time. Mm. You know, I'll give you a personal example. I studied in India in college you know, Delhi University in the early 2000s. And when I was studying comparative economic systems, I didn't know that the socialist calculation debate was a debate. Mm. I only studied Oscar Langa and Abba Lerner. I never studied Mises and Hayek. I studied Mises and Hayek for the first time when I came to the United States to do my <laughs> PhD, you know, part of which was on Indian socialism. And of course, George Mason University is famous for its big influence in Austrian economics and history of economic thought. Yeah. And that's the first time I read it. So I think there is a lag in how some of these ideas enter the mainstream. Hmm. And uh, often the orthodoxy may persist a lot longer, right? But on the other hand, a lot of the global events also impacted how India slowly got weaned off of socialism. And, you know, one of them is the rise of the Asian tigers, you know, South Korea and Taiwan and all these countries, Malaysia, just opening up to trade and just doing fantastically well. And while South Korea opened up in the 60s, the conversation still was very much that, you know, South Korea is a small country. They can do this. But for India and China, which are these huge countries with massive development problems, it must be state-led. Mm. It's only when China liberalized, you know, in, it started liberalizing in 1978. And by the late 80s, you could tell the big difference that India was like, oh, even the Chinese have liberalized. So the prime minister of the day, you know, yeah. P.V. Narsimha Rao was hugely inspired by Deng Xiaoping. And even went to China with the hope of meeting him. I don't think they had a one-on-one -on -one meeting. But, uh -huh. you know, the, the, the two, the government of that time, you know, Rajiv Gandhi was also watching what was being done by Deng Xiaoping's government in terms of reforms quite carefully. And this was just before the PV Narasimha Rao government. So it's true that the orthodoxy takes a long time to change. But, you know, sometimes some global events can also have a very quick timeline in how they impact other countries. But the information existed. I spent some time at the uh, University of Chicago, so my my biases are uh, very much uh, in that vein. Uh, but the information existed uh, about, you know, sort of free market, uh, free trade ideas for a long time. But um, in some countries like India, there was this idea of strategic um, strategic policy uh, so that we need to protect industries so that we can become self-sufficient, um, yeah. you know, those types of ideas, right? So yeah. all those ideas have been proven wrong for, for quite a bit of time, but then India sort of went on <laughs> with, with the same antiquated ideas for a long time, I think, yeah. Yeah, and I think, you know, sometimes history casts a really long shadow. I was recently reading this wonderful book by Tirthankar Roy and Anand Swami, and they've talked about how, you know, colonial laws, a lot of them still have a huge impact on how we think about land relationships and land transactions today, right? How we think about women's property rights or adoption rights today. 
and this is a colonial legacy that doesn't go back 50 years it goes back 150 years right yeah. uh, so sometimes i think a lot of the laws and institutions they can survive a lot longer and uh, there might be some resistance to change uh, and when the change happens sometimes it can happen suddenly and sometimes it takes time so even post liberalization like you know during liberalization we managed to knock off a lot of the closed economy you know crazy high import tariffs and protectionism that came down fairly quickly uh, we managed to knock off a lot of this industrial policy you know in terms of licensing regimes you know the sort of uh, licensing we imposed on say bajaj scooters we managed to dismantle that almost overnight but we have not uh, you know even 30 years after liberalization we have not done a good job of having a modern day labor capital relationship Mm. which can be enforced through contract right so free markets must stand on the foundation of consent and contract for which yeah. you need a functional judicial system you need sensible legislation on how labor and capital interacts and contracts 30 years post liberalization we are nowhere close to mm. you know re reforming or rethinking that relationship so uh in some ways there has been a quick success in some ways you know india is still very much in the socialist mindset and if you speak with people like anand swami they'll say oh it's not just socialism you know the labor capital relationship i can trace it back to 1850 to the to the colonial regime so i think this just needs more study and it mm. needs more careful study in the local indian context we mm. literally need to go through you know one legislation at a time one executive rule at a time and start thinking about is this compatible with the kind of globalized modern day economy that india wishes to build or does this need to be reformed and changed in some sensible fashion yeah so let me ask you this um shuri so um so so one of the issues that india had uh, i would argue uh, i did, i'm just arguing this i i don't really uh, have strong feelings but um intellectual property protection and property rights are foundational attributes of a free market economy if you want to develop you know to become a developed economy um India has had some problems in the intellectual property arena, especially in pharmaceuticals and, and those types of things. And so this is sort of a strategic question. Uh, there is no tactical path to development, <laughs> I would argue. Uh, you have to get all the boxes checked. I mean, it, it's, it's not like, you know, um there is no freedom at midnight <laughs> you know, you got you got to Absolutely. get all the boxes checked to become a developed economy and it doesn't appear that india never really committed to that yeah and you know i i think the commitment is at multiple levels right so one is there needs to be an intellectual commitment right so the scholars who are working on this whether it is you know scholars within social sciences and economics or whether it is history or whether it is in science and policy in the case of intellectual property and things like that there needs to be a commitment that this is the nature of you know the economy one wishes to run and are the policies we are suggesting or are the plans we are making compatible with that right so i think in one sense india has still got this huge socialist hangover right mm. most of the indian intellectuals still lean left yeah. even though they enjoy right 
right? They're very much enjoying the gains yeah. and the benefits of a liberalized economy, but on a specific issue, they might always be, you know, uh, more towards the left, simply because that's how we were educated, right? And right. and so that is now very, very slowly changing. So that's, yeah, I think, one. I think the second is the commitment from the political side, right? I think this is just the gaping hole, right? Every political class comes in and says that they want to have some kind of reform. But to have this kind of reform, we need to build a pipeline, whether it's intellectuals, scholars, technocrats, bureaucrats, you need to build this pipeline that has nothing to do with the politics of the current day. You know, so if we go back to the 1991 moment for, you know, just to give you an example, uh, a lot of the people who worked in the PV Narsimha Rao government were also there during the VP Singh government, the technocrats. Some yeah. of them were also there during the Rajiv Gandhi government, you know, a few years before yeah. that, right? Or Chandrasekhar government, which was the short interim government. Now, these four leaders are quite different. They had quite different agendas. They had very different constituencies that were supporting them. The governments had different strengths and weaknesses. But the people who formed the scaffolding, you know, to get the reforms through, they had this continuity across these four governments, mm. right? Mm. And I'm talking about like, you know, some of the pioneers who helped India reform, right? You know, this is like Montek Singh Aluwalia. Uh, this is Rakesh Mohan, uh, you know, uh, uh, Rangarajan, C. Rangarajan, who was at the time at the RBI, A.N. Varma, who was in the prime minister's office. Uh, these are really important people who took on very important specific parts of the portfolio. And in our 1991 project, we've listed about 20 of them. But you saw this huge continuity. Right. I see that as, you know, completely disappearing in modern day politics. Yeah. Now, what happens is that, you know, if you have a particular chief minister or prime minister from a particular caste or a particular region, they'll say, oh, you know, I want all the people surrounding the prime minister's office to now be Gujarat cadre because, you know, our current prime minister is from Gujarat. Right. Or if, uh, you know, the current RBI governor is uh, from Odisha, then, you know, we need to have officers from Odisha. So, it's very, it's gone back to being very parochial. Yeah. And if you change the technocrats and bureaucrats and intellectuals and scholars, like, you know, the changing winds of the day, you're not going to get very sensible reform. For sensible reform, we need a bunch of people working on these ideas for a long time with an intellectual commitment so that when the political class finds a, an opening, right, when that Overton window shifts, you can pass those reforms. That's what we saw in 1991. Yeah, so there are two things here, um, Sudhi. One, one is sort of, um, do I like these people? You know, so when administration changes, you sort of flesh out um, the current um, group of people and replace them with, with something else. Um, but then there's a competence question. Um, yeah. You know, so this continuity that you talk about across four different administrations actually might have helped India at that time. Uh, I remember, you know, uh, my uh, teacher from Chicago, Raghuram Rajan, was RBI governor for a yeah. while. And then uh, when the current administration came in, they said he's not Indian enough, you know, he has to get out. So, so we make ad hoc policy decisions yeah. based on some sort of pride or something that I don't quite understand. But but optimality of outcomes is, is yes. not what politicians really seek for, right? 
Absolutely. And, you know, this is this is a new thing in India, I must say. You know, I, I'm sure there was a lot of favoritism and nepotism and cronyism within the bureaucracy and technocracy, even during Nehru's time or Indira Gandhi's time. But this, you know, visceral, this is our guy, this is not our guy. You know, this kind of labeling which is happening in modern day India, I don't think this was happening even 15, 17 years ago. Mm. Uh, so, for instance, I have spoken to technocrats who served in the Ministry of Finance, uh, you know, not that long ago, 15, 17 years ago. And you speak with them and they say, look, of course, you don't want to go on every television show and go crazy and attack the prime minister. But we were free to write opinion editorials saying we don't agree with the policy of the day. And when we wrote those kinds of, you know, opinion editorials, uh, the finance secretary would give us a call and say, why don't you come and have lunch with me? Why don't you tell me what your problem is and we can flesh it out and, you know, we will take your input into account, right? So there was a just a greater amount of trust in elites and intellectuals, especially the technocratic class. Uh, that trust has gone missing. Now it's mm -hmm. very much, as we saw in the case of, you know, uh, Dr. Agram Rajan, it's very much, uh, are you with us or against us, right? Mm -hmm. There's no midway. And there's no sense that you can be with the national interest but arguing against a particular government policy or a particular person in power, mm -hmm. right? So this is really something that's changed in India. I think it's very unfortunate. I think a second problem, uh, and I mean, this is not just about Dr. Rajan, but I think about a lot of the recent uh, technocratic hires, uh, there is a new feeling in India that these are people who really don't have much to do with India. Mm. They're kind of helicoptered in for a three-year term. Yeah. <laughs> they don't plan to stay and then they will go back to their jobs. Right. And and I've seen a number of people and these are some of the best minds. I mean, I, I've heard people say this about, you know, uh, Arvind Panagaria, who's at Columbia, who served as the, uh, you know, uh, heading the Niti Aayog. I've heard this said about, you know, Kaushik Basu, who's at Cornell, who was a former chief economic advisor, about Raghuram Rajan, about, you know, Viral Acharya, who was again at the RBI. These are some of the smartest minds we have, but they have these jobs. So the sense is very much, they are not doing this to be in it, mm. right? So they're just coming in for a short period of time. They're doing this as a stint and they'll go back to their academic careers. This is another major difference, uh, you know, relative to 30 years ago when a lot of the foreign trained technocrats came to India to serve in government. They actually stayed for a long time. You know, they had seven, eight, 10, 15 year tenure. So this is, you know, for instance, C. Rangarajan, you know, was trained at University of Pennsylvania, taught at NYU, but sort of moved, right? Vijay Kelkar, all these people, you can very much see that the, 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 the tenure is longer and more continuous. So I think it is a combination of personality. It's yeah. a combination of current social media politics and, you know, whatever is your news channel politics. It's a combination of, you know, the length of tenure and a sense that these people are not really Indians living in India. So it's mm. a lot of factors, but it's very unfortunate. Yeah, it's very unfortunate um, because expertise come from all places. Exactly. Um, and the success of the U.S. is part of that. Um you know, we don't say somebody coming from Ukraine or Colombia. Um, well, you know, they're, they're from Ukraine. I mean, if you if they, if they bring something to the table, yeah, then we, you know, we accept them, right, as um, as something interesting. But but India doesn't do that. So India has had 
this is sort of something that sort of holds back India, I think, in the in the long run. Um, what what I call sort of a false pride, uh, which is I keep hearing, you know, this is an ancient country. We have figured everything out. Uh, I don't see India has figured anything out actually in the grand scheme of things. It might have been an ancient country, but it hasn't figured anything out. It has a lot to learn from from other countries, I think. You know, I I mean, I completely agree with you that, you know, this this sort of outsider bias and this outsized way is completely counterproductive. But, you know, uh, I think it has a lot to do with day-to-day interactions also. I think the way American academics approach anything is quite different, right? We have a very American sensibility, and I'm including myself in this. If I've lived and worked in the United States for the last 15 years, I came here to start graduate school, but I just sort of stayed on. And the way I think about hierarchies, the way I interact with other people, the way I treat people in a particular bureaucracy, it's very different than Mm. how the Indian bureaucracy functions, Mm. right? And when you're an outsider to that, I think there's also a lot of day-to-day confusion and, I mean, not confusion in the sense of like some kind of comedy going on. I, I mean, confusion in the sense of trust building exercise, right? All, all of bureaucracy or technocracy making big decisions, especially reform decisions, they are founded on networks and trust. Yeah. So if I don't like having tea with you <laughs> or, you know, the way you conduct yourself during lunch is completely different from the way we do things in India. Right. Uh, and if that doesn't gel, then how can I trust you when I'm making a major decision about, you know, inflation policy or interest rate policy? And I think I mean, this seems like a bizarre thing. You're right. We must overcome these biases and these issues, they seem so minor, but it is difficult in real life uh, to have a deep level of trust with people simply based on expertise where there isn't a deep personal connection. So I do think that the length of tenure matters for many reasons. You know, I think people Mm. who are coming in from outside, there is some learning to be done on how the Indian technocracy works. How do we fit ourselves well in it? How do we make sure that you know, uh, we function as part of that whole without disturbing the whole or without criticizing everything, you Mm. know, and just criticizing the specific policy at hand. So I think these, I I think both sides have a lot of learning to do, but it's fundamentally a a question of, you know, mismatched expectation and mismatched uh, working style. And I think just saying that someone is an expert and has written wonderful papers on this or op-eds on it, I don't think it is going to overcome the kind of, uh, you know, the the very static system that, that operates in India. And it's been running like that forever and it's going to run like that forever. And in India, the, the markers for trust are caste and community and language, right? Yeah. So the moment yeah. you can't rely on other networks, professional networks, you kind of slide back to that, which is why we have this whole, you know, are you a BJP wala or a Congress <laughs> wala, right? Or are you, you know, from my state or my caste? So it feels very parochial, but I think more than being parochial, it's the way out when there aren't other good ways of forming professional trust and commitment to an intellectual cause. Yeah, I agree with you. I, you know, so it goes both ways. Um, Western societies have to figure out Eastern societies. It's not just India, it's all Eastern cultures or even South American cultures. Yeah. Um, where you go in with a set of expectations based on your experience and heuristics. 
and doesn't quite work. <laughs> it doesn't quite work that way. Uh, and so you have to readjust, uh, retune. Um, so I, I want to finish up on, on this paper. So um, this idea that you say here, um, after independence and never fully committed to the pursuit of economic freedom, after the initial set of reforms in the 1990s and 2000s, um, we, we sort of hit a, um, a dead end, so to speak. Um, and, and, you know, so my, uh, <laughs> my grandfather and my uh, wife's grandfather were colleagues in the first Kerala assembly after independence. And um, I grew up, you know, sort of sitting against him and he had always had BBC on, and um, so that's that's sort of my <laughs> uh, my experience. And uh, there was a time, uh, I believe, in India where people were genuinely interested, from a political perspective, to make the country better. It is unclear to me in 2022, uh, it is the same anymore. You know, I, I, I'm not sure I entirely agree. You know, at least the the people I speak with and I'm, you know, talking about everyone, whether it's, you know, when I go to India, I'm talking about Uber drivers who are taking me around, right? Or when I go to the market and I talk to some shopkeepers, I'm an economist, so I like talking about what's going on in the marketplace. Uh, or I'm talking about like high-level meetings I have, I might have, you know, with various bureaucrats in India. I see a very strong commitment to the national interest, mm. you know, very much so. Yeah. Uh, I, at least I have felt that. I have, you know, never come out of an interaction or a meeting thinking, oh my God, this guy is just for himself and, you know, mm. or this lady is just for herself and they they don't care what's happening to the country. But I think the way they look at the world mm. is quite different. Right. Uh, so I'll, I'll tell you what I think is the fundamental difference between, say, the way you and I think and, the, and, and some of the thinking in India. You are a Chicago train guy. Right. So I, I can I can include you in, in my grouping in this particular instance. But you and I don't think of market interactions uh, as anything except a positive sum game. Mm. Right. So when we think about people transacting on their own, even if it's an unequal transaction, right, even if I'm, uh, you know, engaging with a big monopolist, right, or I'm engaging with the duopolist like Apple and Samsung, and it's a very expensive phone, we still know that this is a positive, positive sum game. I'm gaining something from buying this very expensive Apple phone. And Apple is, of course, adding to its bottom line and so on and so forth. A lot of people in India view market transactions as a zero-sum game or a negative-sum game. Mm. And once again, this goes back to socialism and colonialism, mm. right? In colonialism, this was treated, I mean, it was talked about as a sort of market economy, but it was really an extractive mercantilist economy. It's an imperial power extracting resources for its own benefit, right? So it's not that the positive-sum nature disappeared. Under socialism, anytime you saw markets, they were basically black markets, right? <laughs> so when there is a shortage of Bajaj scooters and there is this big line in the secondhand market, you're basically talking about crooks, you know, who are trying to extract a huge premium from you for delivering a Bajaj scooter. And you know that the, you know, ma maximum retail price or whatever the government has announced is 100 rupees. And this guy is selling it at 170 rupees and you have no choice but to engage. 
And so it feels very extractive. So I think a lot of the historical distortion of markets in India have mm. led Indians to believe, or at least the, the hangover suggests that market transactions are not positive sum games, mm. right? And I think this is the reason for a lot of market skepticism. So mm. the way they may approach the national interest and the way I may approach the national interest is quite different. So during COVID, you know, yeah. I spoke with so many people and I told them, we must not put price controls. Let's say some labs make a killing, okay? During COVID tests, doesn't matter. Making a killing is a price signal and, you know, the increase in price is going to encourage more suppliers to come in. So they will expand the lab capacity and it will adjust. It won't go on forever. But at that time, for a bureaucrat who is suing, seeing this like massive death and devastation going on around them, the idea that a private lab is going to charge, you know, 5,000 rupees for a COVID RT-PCR test when it should be 800 rupees, it just does not sit well with them. Right. They think this is just a huge, you know, kind of capitalist distortion or, you know, people yeah. extracting their pound of flesh. So I think this is where we get a lot of bad policies because the larger market process is misunderstood and we don't think of it as a positive sum exchange. Yeah, that's a great insight. So, um, so the way I think about this, uh, Shruti, if I understand this, is that you are preconditioned to believe certain things. And those preconditions are based on your experiences. So if you haven't experienced free market capitalism, free trade, and the benefits come from those things, and you have only experienced, you know, sort of a halfway house, so to speak, and there, there are a lot of problems and you say, I, I, you know, keep track of all the problems and it doesn't look like if you go any further from the halfway house, it's going to be any better. So, so we have this sort of a, a longitudinal problem. So this is what I want to ask you. So, it's, uh, so Nehru and others came in in 1947, set up a socialist democracy, quote unquote. I'm not sure it's a democracy anymore, but uh, socialist democracy. And that's all you know, that, that's all the experiences that you have, that's all the data that you have. And, and so how do we actually, you know, sort of take this country to a free market capitalism and the free trade? I mean, 1990s, Manmohan Singh and others um, went from, you know, uh, <laughs> a really bad situation to something better, but we could really take it all the way to some sort of a free market capital system, right? Yeah, I, I think we just have to persuade minds, you know, and I, I have a very strong commitment to that. You know, I know a lot of people have suggested that it's so much easier to conduct reforms in dictatorships, you know, relative to democracies. You hear so much of this, right? Given the Chinese experience, given the early South Korean experience, I have a very strong commitment to liberalism, whether it is political, whether it is constitutional, whether it's economic. And so I do think we just need to persuade people. So the 1991 project, you know, that we have at Mercate is very much an effort towards that. And we want to show, you know, example after example, right, paper after paper, essay after essay, that, look, we need to think about reforms that grow the size of the pie, 
right? And don't just haggle over how we redistribute the pie because that's a negative sum, you know, rent-seeking exercise. So we need to think about market transactions and how they grow the size of the pie and how Indians can move towards that and how Indians can prosper. I think we do need to be cognizant, uh, you know, as you know, in the 80s and 90s, the the sort of like what what was dubbed the neoliberal prescription, you know, for the whole country. This was the Washington Consensus and so on. It paid very little attention to who got the gains that were generated, as long as the gains were generated. Mm. And I think the one major difference is in 2022, we can't be agnostic like that. You know, I still won't say we need a redistribution economy as opposed to a growth economy. India still needs to grow. It needs to, you know, go to 10x its current GDP per capita. But we do need to think about who are the winners and losers in this transaction, mm. right? How we are thinking about some basic safety nets. How are we thinking about access to markets, right? So we say, yeah, we're going to liberalize, but does the average person actually have access to these liberalized markets or are they in the informal economy, for instance, right? Selling their labor. Can they actually sell their land and exit agriculture in a sensible fashion and go set up another business or they are stuck in their caste ordained profession forever and ever. So I think we do need to think about these aspects more in a way that Nobody thought we need to think about them, you know, in the 1980s and 90s. And as long as you drop yeah. tariffs and as long as you open up the economy, everything will be fine. So I do think that needs to change. Yeah, so that's a truly practical question. So given set of initial conditions for country X, how do you take the country X to a better X prime position? It depends very much on the initial condition. So you could, you could, you know, you could have theoretical arguments around free market capitalism and and all of that. But um, the op optimum solution depends on where you are and how you go from point X to point Y, right? And you go from point X to point Y by, by sharing the gains in a sensible yeah. manner, right? If the gains from trade are so big, then, you know, maybe one model is, you know, a lot of people like, for instance, you know, Jagdish Bhagwati and Arvind Panagarya had a wonderful book on why growth matters. And a very fundamental argument they make is, look, even for redistribution, you need more growth, right? Yeah. Uh, Post-liberalization, even though the, the footprint of state control reduced, state revenues increased 28-fold in nominal terms, right? Now, if you have 28x the revenues that you used to make previously, you can do so much more in terms of welfare, right? You can do yeah. so much more in terms of health, education, whether it's, you know, universal basic income or farmer subsidies. So I do think we, we need to think about what the surplus is and how do we share the surplus. That's one. But I also think we need to find a very sensible and systematic way of persuading people about these benefits. A lot of the current discourse, you know, unlike your podcast, is about the news of the day, right? Mm. Or what is the scandal that week, right? Uh, right? And all the discussion is basically noise surrounding a specific idea, which becomes old news in 15 days. Uh, we don't have deep dialogue and discourse on very important questions, right? How do we think about agriculture in India? How do we think about labor relationships in India, right? How do we think about inflation in India, right? Inflation is in double digits in the in the last month's uh, reports that have mm. just come up. 
it's extraordinary. I mean, inflation is this massive tax on poor people. So yeah. you do need inflation policy at the highest level, you know, which Dr. Rajan incidentally set up, you know, <laughs> uh, yeah. the, the monetary policy committee and things like that. But you also need uh, a very pragmatic everyday discourse, which I think is missing. Uh, so it's a persuasion exercise, according to me. I, I don't think we can ram this down anyone's throats without it. I, I totally agree. So, so I want to go to another paper that you have, which is very topical, battling COVID-19 with dysfunctional federalism, <laughs> lessons from India. And this was very intuitive for me, uh, uh, Shruti. You know, I've been arguing for this for a long time with my IIT uh, <laughs> uh, classmates. And uh, there are differing opinions on this, but I, I feel very strongly. So what you say here, the Indian Federation is highly centered petal, you say here. And historically, this has left states without the requisite legislative and fiscal authority to make independent action and initiate policies of significance. Consequently, India's response to the global uh, COVID-19 pandemic was to impose a very severe countrywide lockdown using the mandate of the union government. Uh, so this centralized one-size-fits-all uh, idea, you say, was dis uh, was imposed despite high variations across states and resources, healthcare capacity, and incidence of COVID-19 cases. Um, yeah, so the, this is really intuitive for me. So, you know, I mean, looking at this data, and I, I keep thinking, this is not the right right way to do things. Um, as you say in this paper. We have 28 different states, um, eight different union territories. Um, we have three major religions. I don't know if you talk about that in the, the paper or not. Um, and uh, every state has a different language, different culture, different food, different everything. Um, and so India is like Europe put into one country. And so if the European Union sort of went out and imposed some sort of Europe-wide uh, lockdown, it might not have been a good policy, right? That's what that's what we find in India. No, uh, I mean, absolutely. I, I completely agree with you. I think it's a great summary of what we were trying to do in this paper. This is written with my colleagues, GP Manish and Abhishek Chautagunta. And you know, when we Abhishek and I first started looking in a different paper, we were looking at healthcare capacity. And I just want to explain how we got to this idea in the first place. You know, very early on in COVID, there was this big thing about flattening the curve, right? And to flatten the curve, there are two sides to the equation, right? So one is, of course, how quickly the number of COVID cases are growing. But the other side of the equation is what is your healthcare capacity, right? Hmm. So Abhishek and I said, what is the healthcare capacity? Let's look into it. And, you know, healthcare is a state and a union subject in India. So both the state governments and the federal government are allowed to legislate and allowed to make investments. And what we found is would not surprise any Indian and, and you know, most people coming from federal countries, which is that there is massive variation. You know, so, I mean, there's massive variation in Indian states. You have, you know, Indian states like Uttar Pradesh, which is the largest state, which is almost the size of Brazil, right? And then you have small states like Sikkim, which are the size of Bhutan. So, you know, that is one major difference. 
you have you know states which have very high gdp which are like you know middle to high income country kind of gdp like you know goa has the same gdp per capita as jordan right and the poorer states in india like bihar are like haiti which is you know one of the poorest regions in the world so this is an important thing to keep in mind when we think about india right it's 1.3 billion it is a subcontinent with massive amount of regional variation and even within these states there are rich parts in the urban areas there is a very poor countryside sometimes so you know even all of uttar pradesh is not equally poor right so it's got very important metropolitan centers and then it has a countryside which can be relatively poor so this is important to keep in mind so when we started looking at healthcare capacity we were not surprised that it is completely different in each state and now if we apply the simple logic of covid and you know flattening the curve you know if one side of the equation which is healthcare capacity is so different in each state then the other side of the equation which is you know the number of cases and how they rise and how that must be dealt with must also be different right so it's possible to have a state where you don't have numbers going up very quickly like sikkim mm. right which is relatively rich in terms of gdp per capita and doesn't have terrible hospital infrastructure on the other hand you can have a very rich state like maharashtra where the numbers are just going crazy right this is exponential growth doubling every 3 days where you need to have a completely different kind of policy what we saw in india was that that was not done right there was this massive knee jerk reaction and there was a country wide lockdown the first lockdown which was announced for 3 weeks and then extended to 70 days it shut down a country of 1.3 billion people effectively locked them in their homes and brought economic activity to a staggering halt in a way that is not clear was beneficial right. because there were states like sikkim there were some states in the northeast which didn't even have one covid case you know and had the same lockdown that you imposed in maharashtra or kerala which had thousands of covid cases so this was our point now if we peel the layers and we say why did this happen in india and you know how crazy is this uh it goes back to the nature of the federation right uh whether it is going back to colonial times where you know a small group of bureaucrats a few hundred bureaucrats were controlling the entire country effectively right because you were running it for a group of people in whitehall or you talk about post independent india and this planning exercise right where effectively you have the central government which ha- controls most of the revenue and it will hand it out or distribute it to various states and it controls all the economic activity and economic control in its hands what you essentially have is you never have development of state capacity in each state mm. right and if you don't have a deep strong state you know in every state and then i would even make this argument further for local government if you don't have that then the states in times of crisis are just kind of floundering and even the states look to the prime minister's office and say hey you got to help us you got to help us do something right so the nature of indian federalism is what leads to these kinds of lockdowns and if you have these kinds of lockdowns you're more likely to have them in the future because you never allowed every state to develop its own capacity so that's kind of the short version of the argument uh the longer version of the argument and you know people are free to read the paper the southern economic journal very kindly made it open access because it was one of the covid papers so i think it's it's still freely available uh the longer version of the paper actually goes through the detailed data 
Uh, and I'm talking about what is the healthcare capacity of each state? We try and quantify it given the limited data that's out there. And we actually looked at very early mobility and case numbers to show that a reduction in mobility in the Northeastern states didn't necessarily lead to a you know, oh, sorry, an increase in mobility in the Northeastern states didn't always lead to an increase in the number of COVID cases, right? Or a reduction in mobility in some of the very densely packed states didn't lead to a reduction in the number of COVID cases either. So mm. attacking mobility as the number one criterion, right, for a country of 1.3 billion people was a very flawed policy. You know, uh, maybe mobility shouldn't have been restricted. Like maybe, you know, at one point, India shut down beaches and parks. Now we know that COVID is, you know, not, it's spreading more when you have people cooped up in a small interior space with the air conditioner running or something like that. And we should have opened beaches and we should have opened parks and an increase in mobility outside the home wouldn't have necessarily led to an increase in the number of cases. But we followed a very bizarre policy. So this one size fits all policy imposed massive costs across the country without a massive benefit in every region. There are very few regions that benefited from the policy. And India corrected this later. You know, the future lockdowns were not centralized and they were not one size fits all. So on this particular question, I must say India learned very quickly from its mistakes and you know, the future shelter in place requirements or lockdown requirements, they didn't quite do this. Yeah, but but there's a sort of an objective function question, right? Um, so its objective function is to sort of, you know, um, dampen out the peaks. That's one policy. Uh, but what we're finding in COVID, uh, especially long COVID, is that you have very severe long-term medical costs, CNS, central nervous system, cardiovascular issues. So if your objective function is to reduce societal costs due to this shock, then it's sort of a different policy, right? So, you know, I know that Sweden had a very different way of approaching this. Uh, they seem to have done pretty well, um, but it would be a good case study to look at Sweden and say if, I don't know what the population of Sweden is, probably six, seven million people I'm guessing, if half of them had COVID at some point, um, there's a there's a long-term uh, cost issue for the country that hasn't been really analyzed, right? So, I mean, for India, there are two issues. One is, if you look at the excess deaths in India from 2020 to 2022, we find like six or seven million people. Uh, and India reports only half a million or 600,000 people died of COVID, uh, which is completely incorrect, right? So we have had a massive, massive negative effect on on uh, utility, on, on, on people. Um, and so whatever policies India followed seem to, be, seem to have not worked, <laughs> I would say. Uh, yes. So, you know, I'll, I, there are two different and quite important points that you're making. Now, I agree with you about, you know, there are some very long term costs to society, especially if people get long COVID. Having said that, that was not the reason they imposed a centralized lockdown on yeah. March 24th. And I think that does matter. Right. If this was one of the reasons why this kind of lockdown was imposed, then I think we would have accounted for that a little bit differently in our analysis, 
right? Uh, at that time, it was just a question of, oh, when people travel and we don't control it, and you know, there are people coming from Italy and these conferences and students coming from China, and that's the reason COVID is spreading and we need to clamp down on travel and mobility, right? And that was the idea. Yeah. And uh, there's a difference between traveling to the grocery store versus traveling internationally, right? There's a difference between even how you control grocery store travel. So for instance, if you say, you know, one of the COVID uh, mandates, when they started slowly opening things up in some of the states, they said, you can only go to the grocery store between, you know, five and seven in the evening. Now, that's a terrible COVID policy because mm. it means everyone is going to crowd in two hours. Yeah. What you should instead say is that we're going to allow for the first time markets to be open 24 hours. So right. that, you know, people don't densely pack around them, right? Now, that can't be done at a countrywide level. That has to be a highly local municipal level mandate, right? Mm. For this particular market, which is a dense, crowded market, these are the policies. For another market, which is an open mm. mandi, you know, with fresh air, that's, but they're selling perishables. So it can only be for four hours in the morning, right? So I think we need to think about that question of local knowledge, local conditions differently. And I don't think long COVID featured anywhere or like these huge costs on society featured anywhere in the original decision. So I would still criticize that, you know, original lockdown decision based on the information at the time. Yeah, but I, you're I, right. I, you know, on, on, on long COVID, I think I think you're right. But I don't think we still have very good answers uh, yeah. in terms of the long term cost to really do the cost benefit analysis. And, and as, as an economist, that's, you know, really all I know how to do. On the second question of deaths, I think you've raised a really important point. Uh, we have dramatically underestimated deaths in India. Now, there are many reasons for that. But, you know, the reason once again goes back to a large extent to state capacity, which is the dysfunctional federalism argument. It's not that we have badly calculated COVID deaths. India has never been good at giving the correct cause of death before COVID either. Right. So we don't have an accurate number of malaria deaths in India or an accurate number of tuberculosis deaths in India. We are just simply bad at recording births and deaths. And we are furthermore very bad at recording cause of death. Right. So this has just continued into COVID. And the reason I say this as a pointed thing is a lot of people said, oh, the government is trying to hide the number of deaths, right? I mean, the government would have to be incredibly competent to <laughs> systematically reach every hospital and every crematorium and make sure that they don't count deaths. I don't think that's what's happening. I think we're just bad at this. The second is, you know, this is where like the perverse, you know, incentives and the consequences start coming in. There were so many restrictions on how COVID deaths need to be treated when it comes to burials and cremations, right? There's the two main ways in which people are, the last rites are done for the major religions in India, uh, that a lot of the families were trying to hide that this is a COVID death because otherwise the body would be taken away of their loved mm. one and they won't be able to conduct last rites the way they want mm. to, right? So there is a, a reason that hospitals were under-reporting because they simply didn't have the time and the manpower to go through the ICMR requirements of, you know, having that committee within each hospital to tag a COVID death or a non-COVID death. There was a lot of under-reporting from families that go to the crematorium and then misreport because they don't want to be kicked out. Uh, and there is under-reporting at a statistical level because we're just not good at giving death certificates with cause of death. And when you put all of these factors together, you get a massive underestimate of 
COVID tag debts. But we have become pretty good at estimating excess debts. And as you said, the excess debts, you know, are in the range of three to five million, uh, you know, for the 2021 year. And they've, they've like nothing to do with the actual uh, debts that have been tagged, uh, according to official statistics. Uh, now, once again, when it comes to these debts, when we start parsing through a lot of the, you know, newspaper stories and reporting on, on debts, a lot of them are not because they got very severe COVID. A lot of it is because the hospital infrastructure was just crumbling and couldn't handle the number of cases and how quickly it exploded. And this is something in, I mean, Abhishek and I wrote the first version of our healthcare capacity paper. I think we published it on 4th of April, 2020, right? So this is as soon as COVID happens in India and the lockdown happens. And we're telling anyone who would listen that, look, healthcare capacity is not sufficient. Now, you can't magically increase the number of doctors, but you can very quickly increase the number of hospital beds and the number of ICU units and a number of oxygen tanks. This is a question of resource mobilization. Hmm. Nobody listened to us, right? And now come to, you know, April, May 2021, when the Delta wave hits, and in city after city, in hospital after hospital, the story that you hear is they ran out of oxygen. They ran out of hospital beds. There were people dying in the lobbies of hospitals. There were people dying on their way because there was no ambulance available. So they brought them in a private taxi and the private taxi didn't have, you know, the ambulance infrastructure to keep a person alive. This is a massive failure of governance. Mm. It is not because the disease was so complex and had like, you know, people got severe COVID or long COVID or comorbidities. These were avoidable deaths that should have been avoided. And I'm talking about sometimes simple policy. You know, I, I had a conversation with Barkhadat, who's, you know, one of the most eminent uh, journalists in India. She's written a wonderful book on COVID. Uh, it's called To Hell and Back. And I recently had a conversation with her on my podcast on this. Uh, a green passage wasn't provided to ambulances in Delhi you know, during the Delta wave. In fact, to, to make sure that the lockdown was followed, you actually had the police blocking important roads. You know, they had these barricades put which slowed down traffic. And many people, including her father, and, you know, a number of stories we've heard in Delhi, they died on the way to the hospital because they either couldn't get an appropriate, you know, ambulance or they died sitting in traffic. Yeah. Now... This is not even a COVID-caused death, according to me. This is just like a government malfunction. So when, when you know, Abhishek, Manish and I are talking about state capacity and, you know, we're talking about dysfunctional federalism, this is something we really need to pay attention to. We need to mm -hmm. systematically look at which are the states and districts that don't have enough hospitals, that don't have enough doctors. How do we make sure we can give them the resources? So many places in Bihar we heard about where the primary healthcare center they have machines, but they don't have electricity. So how are you going to run a ventilator? When a ventilator has been allotted, there's a nurse practitioner who can run it. But you, when you put the plug in, <laughs> nothing yeah. works because it doesn't get electricity. So these sorts of problems, I think, cannot be solved at a central or a union government level. They need 
a high level of mobilization for each state and each local government and i think indians really need to mobilize and say we cannot die in this you know there needs to be a dignity even in a pandemic right this mm. this is just shocking that people are dying waiting for a hospital bed and i think that is something we need to have like a bigger social consciousness about yeah so i'm a bit conflicted about this really so you know i live in the southern state of kerala i don't live there but my parents live there uh and uh i lost my aunt and my niece to covid so sorry last uh last six months last nine months i guess um and and kerala you know many people say is pretty well advanced in terms of <laughs> Uh, medicine and all of that, hospital beds, doctors, nurses. I mean, uh, you know, some of your charts show that Kerala has uh, high levels of per capita doctors and nurses and hospital beds. But um, it's unclear to me that those aggregate metrics actually says anything, you know, in the grand scheme of things. Well, what's, what do you think about that? Uh, I agree with you. I think they tell you some bare basics, right? Uh, in terms of, hey, the number of beds you have is so disproportionate to the number of people and children and elderly you have, you've got to make sure you do something about it. But on the other hand, just given that there are enough hospital beds doesn't mean that there will be always good health care that is provided at hand. And yeah. there were a few things that happened in Kerala. Now, I have only heard this in terms of anecdotal evidence, but one of the things I've heard repeatedly is, by the second year of the pandemic, there was just like institutional fatigue in Kerala mm. because the number of cases were just not going down, yeah. right? And even though the people are relatively rich and the hospital beds exist, you can't magically get more frontline workers. You know, it takes five years to train a doctor, right? It takes <laughs> a two, three years to train a nurse. So you can't quickly expand on certain margins, right? They're relatively inelastic. Right. And your nurse, nursing staff is basically exhausted by the time you reach, you know, end of 2021, because in Kerala, the onslaught has been relentless, yeah. right? It's been there since February or March 2020. Yeah. Uh, this is a really, I, 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 I fully appreciate what you're saying that, you know, just having enough hospital beds or doctors is not sufficient. But we know what happens when even that doesn't exist. Right. Yeah. The silent deaths in Uttar Pradesh and the silent deaths in Bihar and the mass burials, you know, of people just being, you know, in the shallow graves in the banks of the Ganges and things like that. So we know that that is true. Right? There are no options. There were no, there are no options. options. There. No. Exactly. In Kerala, I still think, I mean, death is unfortunate and terrifying and I'm so sorry for your loss, but it still feels like a story where there is dignity mm. during the pandemic. There is a government response. There is a hospital response. There's a hospital to go to. Like the people who've lost their lives have lost them while getting medical treatment. And maybe yeah. it wasn't the level of care that anybody deserves, uh, but something was available, right? They didn't die waiting for electricity to get turned on in a primary sure. healthcare center or yeah. in an Uber in the middle of Delhi because yeah. there's a police barricade. And I think that's an important difference. Uh, you know, the way uh, I recently I was in New Delhi and the way people have spoken about the Delta wave. Uh, I grew up in a refugee colony in Delhi when I was younger. 
right? Uh, it felt very similar to how people spoke about the partition, hmm. in the sense that every single family has a tragedy, right? And it's not a minor level tragedy; it's a horror show, right? Every single one has a terrible story about what happened to their loved one and how there was no dignity or no way of getting closure or even grieving or mourning, you know, the loss of a loved one. That I I heard over and over again. I remember, you know, I mean, this feels a little uh, very minor, but I remember there was this one week in April two thousand twenty-one when three very close friends uh, incidentally all three of them lost their father mm. and i heard about it and i had to make you know sort of three condolence calls back to back and you would not believe this the first question each one of them asked me was hey you know lots of people in delhi do you have any contacts at the crematorium we are on a 24 hour line and that's just just heartbreaking right mm. uh you've called to console someone about the loss of their parent and the the first question they're asking each person is do we have contacts at the crematorium it just feels like a massive failure you know of some sort so this i feel is important because it has something to do with how we think about trauma as a society uh it has something to do with how we think about expectations from the governance systems in society right this the fact that we've survived this horror cannot mean that you know more horror is inflicted upon oh, us oh it's it's coming so 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 i want to finish up with uh, uh, another paper that you have so simple rules for the developing world i really like this paper shree so much of the discussion you say in favor of simplicity of legal rules and against complex regulation is rooted in economically developed countries with strong state capacity with economic development and state capacity comes the presumption that complex rules will be enforced therefore analysis focuses on the administrative and error costs and the unintended consequences of complex rules that are enforced yeah so i'm very much in favor of this <laughs> in favor of this idea um so I mean, personally, I want to eliminate income taxes and go to all the way to uh, you know uh, sales taxes. Um, you get high compliance. Income tax uh, income is is a good, not a bad. So you shouldn't really tax income, but consumption should be taxed um, in some way. Um, but people say, well, the economy is driven by sixty three percent consumption, or whatever. Uh, but that's okay. I mean, things things will. change a little bit um but the simplicity of regulation is quite important so uh, i just spent i don't know 3 weeks trying to do my taxes um and i have two graduate degrees i can understand it <laughs> um so so i don't know how 300 million people are doing their taxes um it it is such a crazy thing to even think about and so 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 what are you saying here in terms of simplicity yeah you know i mean i am not surprised that you like this paper this is a very <laughs> chicago idea this comes you know the title of the paper comes from richard epstein's very famous book called you know simple rules for a complex world 
and the idea is exactly as you say which is as the economy becomes more and more and more complex and as social interactions become more complex does not necessarily imply that the regulatory environment needs to increase in complexity in fact the simpler the regulatory environment the better it is for very high you know degree of complexity or deep division of labor in society and uh, richard epstein talked about you know contract law tort law he property law he had a you know taxation he had a bunch of areas that he talked about now what i see and this is you know based on a lot of my work in india you know that india has one of the most complex and cumbersome <laughs> set of rules that exists anywhere yeah. in the world right now the main difference between the united states and india that that i see when you know quite viscerally observe is if a rule is very complex in the united states it is still enforced and then people will complain about it people will complain about how long it takes to do their taxes or entrepreneurs will complain about how long it takes to get a health permit from the city of you know new york or whatever when they are setting up yeah. a restaurant in india when rules become very complex nobody follows them right right you get around them. you get around you get around them and the reason you get around them is twofold one is the government simply does not have the capacity to enforce those rules so if the government had the capacity to enforce the crazy rules you know governing restaurants in delhi for instance there is no way those rules would exist because then people would really revolt they would say this is a crazy kafka estate we can't run a restaurant business functionally and if the government had that kind of state capacity they would say okay we need to roll this back what ends up happening in india instead is there is no state capacity to enforce these rules right so if you're talking about restaurant inspectors right uh, you would if a restaurant inspector actually shows up it would be like maybe once in 5 years because that's how many years it would take if he actually did his job carefully and properly so instead what he does is he kind of sends one of his minions once every 6 months and gets a big paycheck in terms of some kind of you know corruption now that's a terrible equilibrium that india is trapped in right mm. so uh, alex tabrock and i this paper is co-authored with him our argument is that the epstinian insight which is simple rules for a complex world is even more important in countries which have poor state capacity than countries yeah. which have high state capacity because when you have poor state capacity your rules are not enforced equally they're enforced arbitrarily right and because the rules are enforced arbitrarily and there's all this corruption it leads to what we call like an endogenous increase in complex rules right mm -hmm. so let's say uh, a particular rule about you know restaurant health certificates is not followed right and then someone dies a child dies of food poisoning in a restaurant what is the state response to this problem it's not to increase the number of health inspectors or to allow the market to decide it is anyone where there is a case of food poisoning in a restaurant will now have criminal penalty of 5 years right so you impose an even more complex rule now that is an even more difficult rule to enforce so now you are further burdening your police capacity your judicial capacity so you're kind of trapped in this crazy circle and our argument is the epstinian insight is way more important right in 70% of the world or 70% of the world population which is in developing countries with low state capacity relative to the small percentage of people who are living in very prosperous states where even the more com most complex tax regulation or the most complex restaurant regulation is going to be followed
Yeah, so I agree with that, uh, Shruti, but I, I think simplicity is always better. So um, US GAAP, for example, on the accounting side, is very complex. Um, the, my understanding is the European equivalent is not that complex. So for instance, you know, suppose I write down a heuristic that says don't do anything bad. Okay, that's the only rule. <laughs> don't do anything bad. Um, as opposed to this big US gap, you know, if you do X, don't do X prime. And if you do X double prime, don't do X triple prime. And then we have thousands of lawyers getting around all those rules. That is that is a bad system. <laughs> I mean, it doesn't really lead to anywhere, right? I mean, that is the, the fundamental issue here. Yeah, and if you think this is a bad system for America, imagine how bad it is in a system that doesn't have anywhere close to American resources to enforce this or deal with it, right? Yeah. Even a terrible system in America, right? Even a very complex rule. Let's say you get sued by one of the regulatory agencies. You're still going to get your day in court, right? Right. In India, you're not going to get your day in court for 20 years, right? right? So I think our argument is very much what you are saying and then extending it to other parts of the world where this kind of law and economics analysis is simply not the mainstay, right? Uh, this has also got a lot to do with economics, the way it is. You know, development economists don't talk to law and economics people, right? These are like separate categories, right? Constitutional economists don't talk to healthcare economists. And that's why some of the work I'm doing, you find both interesting and odd, right? The, the COVID and federalism paper is talking about a very important constitutional economics idea and yeah. applying it to this particular case of a pandemic or healthcare capacity, right? And so similarly, here we're talking about what is an insight, which is fairly well-recognized now in law and economics, and we're extending the idea to development economics and developing countries. So I absolutely 100% agree with you that I don't think that these rules are anywhere close to ideal. I would like to go back to the Epstinian version of these rules, right? But if you think these rules are bad here, and these rules are bad in the European Union, and these rules are bad in Australia, you don't even know how bad they are in <laughs> Uganda <laughs> or how bad they are in Ethiopia or how much damage they do in India, which is kind of the simple point, right? Uh, yeah, so, and, sorry. sorry so, uh, so, so the point you make here is that, like in the case of India, yeah, I, I think you, you, you say here that the, it's a fairly sophisticated set of rules, let's say, but if you don't have any power to implement them, you just sort of complex, you know, complexify the, the process, right? So India, India, at least from afar, it appears to be one of those countries that you know that that want to make rules in and make it very. Uh, India is a very complex country, and it, it makes everything complex. Let me let me put it that way. Yeah. And so, so from a regulatory perspective, it is a tendency. I would say to complex, complexify things, right? What you're arguing here is that if you don't have an enforcement mechanism, you don't have a standardization process, you don't have people understanding the rules that you make, that's probably not a good thing, right? Actually, it's worse than not just being a good thing. It's actively yeah. a terrible thing because what ends up happening is if there is very limited or weak state capacity and we add a lot of complexity to it, uh, 
you know, there's this phrase that uh, um, Lant Pritchett and his co-authors came up with called premature load bearing. Mm. Okay. So what ends up happening when you have premature load bearing is, you know, one way of thinking about it is, oh, if we overburden the system, maybe it gets strong and more robust. But in the case of complex rules, we've seen case study after case study that actually the system collapses. Mm. So if you have a weak state or a state with relatively low level of state capacity and you increase complexity too soon, mm. what will end up happening is it will collapse under the burden of those complex rules and it is never going to be able to develop the capacity that it needs to become prosperous, right? Thanks. So it has a double impact. So the immediate impact is all your citizens and people you know, engaged in every aspect of life are going through hell because it's too complicated to file their taxes or it's too complicated to open a restaurant or it's too complicated to get a marriage certificate or a driving license, right? But the worst part still is you are never going to get to a place where you can enforce rule of law because you have prematurely burdened your systems too much, mm. right? And now you get to a point where if your judicial capacity and your police capacity is overburdened with bad restaurant regulation, because we've criminalized everything, you are going to spend less time uh, investigating murders, right? Mm. Uh, or, you know, litigating or, you know, prosecuting murderers. And now you have a truly lawless society, right? Mm. A society where people are not confident that, you know, a serious criminal is going to get prosecuted and actually, you know, see his day in court and be put behind bars, then who cares about restaurant regulation anymore, right? Mm -hmm. So you're getting trapped in these strange, you know, short term, medium term and long term equilibria and they're very perverse. And the idea we try and show in this paper is there are no rich countries which have complex rules and weak state capacity, mm. right? In fact, there are very, there are virtually no rich countries which have complex rules and even high state capacity. Most of the rich developed world actually has relatively, and I use the word relatively here, has relatively simple rules mm. and relatively high state capacity. That is the winning combination to get out of the poverty trap in development economics, right? You want a strong state, you want a few rules that are enforced well, and then you want to leave everything else to, you know, social transactions, market transactions, civil society. Anything and, that gets in that way creates a problem. And I think the other part you talk about here is sort of corruption. So when you have low state capacity and high complexity in rules, it sort of nourishes corruption, right? Um, is that is that a way to think about it? Absolutely. So, you know, multiple reasons. One is if you have complex rules that nobody thinks is going to be enforced, you know, the classic example of these labor inspectors or these health inspectors, right? India had such a complicated labor law system, which has still not been reformed, and so few labor inspectors that I, I, I think we've, you know, quantified this somewhere in the paper, but I don't remember off the top of my head. But it's something like, you know, each labor instructor, inspector, you know, can only go to a factory once every five years or once every 10 yeah. years or something. So that's not a functional labor inspection system. So what ends up happening? You start bribing your labor inspector because he has the ability to shut down your firm, right? We've given a lot of power to one guy. He can really shut down your operations temporarily or permanently. So to make sure that you kind of keep him at bay in a world of low state capacity, you give him uh, bribes. But the other aspect of a weak state capacity system is 
it's not going to be very good at identifying and prosecuting the corrupt officer either. Hmm. You have very few corrupt officers in the United States because rules are enforced. There are very few officers who are actually breaking the rules. They're easier to find, right? Mm. In India, if virtually all your labor inspectors are corrupt, it's going to be harder to find them, mm. right? And if your judicial and your police capacity is overburdened by, you know, thousand other regulatory problems, then it's they're not going to have enough capacity to actually find these people and prosecute them. So you get into a different kind of equilibrium, right? Cascading. It has this cascading effect, uh, which is the reason that corruption becomes endemic. It becomes harder to resolve corruption. So the only way out of this equilibrium is to take away the pressure points where people can extract some kind of a bribe, right? Mm -hmm. And that point is... Either you dismantle your labor inspection system or you make it extremely simple and so on and so forth. Uh, a simple example of what they did in the case of traffic cops in India, for instance, right? Earlier, a traffic cop would cut the chalan. The chalan is the you know traffic ticket, as they call it in, in Hindi. Uh, he would cut the chalan when he catches you, you know, in some kind of traffic infraction. So while he's, you know, writing the ticket, you can kind of go on the side and say, hey, why don't we resolve this privately? You give him, you know, a fraction of the ticket as the bribe, you escape the ticket. One of the rules that's been brought in is nobody is going to get a ticket on the spot. It's going to be mailed to you. Mm. Okay. Which basically means now there is a far, you know, lesser opportunity to do this transaction on the spot and then avoid it, right? Very often people don't even know that they've got a traffic ticket until it shows up in the mail. Yeah. Right? So this is an example of now your traffic cops are only dealing with, you know, traffic problems and crises on the spot and the enforcement of, you know, minor and major traffic in infractions, that is going to be done by a separate agency or a separate traffic court or tribunal when your ticket shows up at home. Now, I'm not saying we've completely removed, you know, all graft in traffic violations. That's not what I'm saying at all. But I'm saying sometimes simplifying enforcement rules or taking away the power from a particular inspector or a particular yeah. bureaucrat can actually have quite an important impact. Another interesting way of doing this is dramatically reducing the uh, penalty for a traffic ticket. Right? Mm -hmm. So... If someone, if a traffic ticket only costs 100 rupees, right? Most people don't want to pay bribes. Most people are good people, right? And there are very few cops who want to sell their soul for 20 rupees, right? So you're more likely to be corrupt if the amount that you can extract is high. You're more likely to pay the bribe if the actual penalty is so high that you're better off settling for the bribe. Mm. But if the penalties uniformly become lower in number, you're better off just paying the penalty on both sides, yeah. right? And the cop is also better off accepting the penalty. So even if you don't want to do away with all the traffic rules, there are ways of simplifying the system, making it more incentive aligned, that the enforcement mechanism doesn't impose so heavily on state capacity. Excellent. Yeah, this has been great, Shruti. I know that you have to go. So thanks so much for spending time with me. This was such a pleasure. Thank you for taking the time, you know, so carefully to read the papers and to engage with this. I'm a big fan of the podcast and the show. And, uh, you know, it was just lovely to have this conversation with you. Thanks so much. Bye. Bye.
This is a scientific sense podcast providing unscripted conversations with leading academics and researchers on a variety of topics. If you'd like to sponsor this podcast, please reach out to info@scientificsense.com.